Welcome to the Eastern Approaches podcast, hosted by Alex Thompson. Joining me today for what we hope will be the first in a considerable series of interviews on the Near East is Gevorg Virats, who is from the region and is a scholar of religion and of the political aspects of religion in the region. But Gevorg also has plenty to say about the political, historical and socio-economic aspects of all the countries ranging around Turkey. Gevorg, it's great to have you on. It's very nice being with you, Alex. Hello. Now, we're speaking in mid-July 2020 in the first of these podcasts, and suddenly a large slice of the news-consuming population has become aware of a very large religious building in Istanbul, the city at the centre of the world, the city that's been named three or four times throughout history. And this is, of course, uh, the building variously known as Hagia Sophia, the Greek for holy wisdom, or in the modern pronunciation, Aya Sophia. And the first theme we have to discuss today is why is the region and the world in uproar over a judicial, possibly politicized judicial decision in Turkey to reappropriate that building uh, under color of it being uh, a, a false decision in the 1920s and 1930s to uh, uh, secularize it, to turn it into a museum and to make it uh, a mosque again, perhaps with again in inverted commas, given the length of time that's intervened since it was a mosque. What is this building and why is a single cathedral or museum or mosque able to affect the course of history? Alex, I would like to uh, start this by saying that I do not expect this our conversation to be an interview, because as you well know, uh, I am just as interested in your thoughts about the issue as, as you are in mine. So let us maybe come together with uh, some ideas and thoughts about the situation. What I can say is that I've had many conversations with my counterparts in different countries in the world, such as Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Ukraine, Russia, Georgia, Armenia, and the opinions divided based on their religious affiliation, or rather whether they were religious or non-religious. Because every single religious person told me, uh, regardless of what their religion was, Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, everyone told me that a mosque is better than a museum. Because Under the, museum, the idea that if it's at least a house of prayer, then that's better than people hoping at it. That's right. That's right. But the secular people say that they're deeply offended by the fact that something of uh, this uh, historic value and the architectural value is uh, expropriated, as it were, by a religion. And in my opinion, I... Well, first of all, I struggle to reconcile these two approaches uh, because, uh, well, it was intended as a religious building initially, regardless of what people's attitudes towards uh, the building are today. And uh, yes, it did change hands several times in, in history, and it was a secular object as well. So... A lot depends, I would say, on the approach you're taking towards religion 
But on the other hand, uh, what did the Turkish government mean by turning it into the mosque? What was their intent? And I think that's more, more important of a question because Turkey does have many mosques. It isn't like Turkey doesn't have enough mosques for the Muslims to pray there. Anyone who's been to that historic western side, the European side of Istanbul, and stayed in the tourist areas will know that you can't move for mosques. <laughs> and uh, there are so many churches that have been converted to mosques in Turkey. Hagia Sophia isn't the only uh, church that is now being turned to a mosque again. There are literally thousands of churches uh, the Greek churches, the Byzantine churches, the Armenian churches, the Assyrian churches, and the Syriac churches. Many of them, uh, literally in, in the thousands, were, were converted to, uh, to serving as mosques. So now, what was the point that Erdogan uh, was making in, in transferring that building to, to their religious uh, entity? What would you say, Alex? The first angle uh, down which I would view this question is the unique situation of the city of Istanbul, formerly Constantinople, formerly Byzantium, uh, with no disrespect whatsoever meant to the Turkish people or the Turkish Republic. And I think thinking Turkish patriots would say this as well. You almost have a unique situation in the case of Istanbul and Turkey that the city is anterior to the nation, certainly to the state. That's not as controversial to say it that way. Uh, isn't it remarkable that as soon as Mustafa Kemal Atatürk won, well, he won two wars effectively, won against the Greeks around 1923 uh, in a sudden turnaround of fortunes, of course. And we now know that um, the early, uh, the, the nascent Soviet communist state was actually uh, backing that much to many people's surprise. And behind them, of course, London and New York bankers. That's just one angle. As soon as Kemal Atatürk won first that battle and then a, whatever remaining battle there was against other elements of the Turkish apparatus in order to proclaim Turkey now a republic, to abolish the caliphate and to modernize and westernize Turkey, one of the things he did was to say that this city itself was so fraught with history that Ankara would have to become the new capital because that too was an ancient city, Angora in antiquity, but it's in the middle of the Anatolian plateau. So it's a bit like what Brazil did later in the 20th century saying, we'll have a deliberately centralized capital city to get rid of or to, to chop the state loose from the pre 20th century baggage of you know, the, the one, edge, one edge of the country, uh, one port being disproportionately hugely significant for the nation. Uh, and by doing so, I think he ended, he intended to level the economic and social disparities within the country. Uh, but you know, I'll, I'll toss that back to you in a, uh, in a way. Just outline for, for listeners, because even well-versed listeners in the West perhaps don't realize this. What is the significance of the city of Istanbul to people in your region, the countries around Turkey to a depth of two countries in any direction? They, you know, they refer to this country as, sorry, the city as the city, which is what Istanbul is in the in the Greek original version of that name. It, it just means Stimbolin, to, to the city. What is this metropolis? And, and what are all these small Christian nationalities 
that you've referred to who have vanishing presences in Istanbul? Uh, well, first of all, I definitely agree with you about the role of Ataturk in building modern day Turkey. And uh, the outline that you made of his attempt to level Turkish economic and socio-political development by moving the capital from uh, Constantinopolis or uh, modern day Istanbul to Ankara. Uh, this attempt uh, was one of the cornerstones, the pillars of the modern Turkish Republican identity. Whereas now what we're seeing is an attempt, uh, a counterattempt uh, by Erdogan to take the uh, weight back to, uh, to the original capital of the Ottoman Empire. Now, of course, uh, Constantinopolis, as it's referred to in Greek, or Constantinople, is indeed called the city in um, many uh, communities around the area. Uh, it's, it's, it's called that in, in Greek, it's called that in Armenian, it's called that in, in Kurdish. Uh, the Quran refers to Constantinopolis, to Constantinople. Prophet Muhammad uh, did render these words in this particular way in Arabic. He said, Constantinia. This is and quite remarkable, isn't it? Not to lose the flow of what you're saying there, Gevorg, but the Arabs, of course, are an ancient, proud, civilized people. And yet, despite the extreme importance of Mecca, Medina and Jerusalem in Islam from Muhammad's day onwards, he has a great role for this foreign Western Greco-Roman city, which he refers what? to in the, in the form Constantinople, slightly Arabized, as you say. What's uh, even more important from the religious perspective here, Alex, is that since Muhammad used this rendering, Constantinia, it is therefore mandatory, or it is sunnah, to use that, that rendering for the Muslims that follow uh, the Sunni uh, tradition of Islam. Good point, because, and not much discussed by many uh, Islamic uh, figures, actually. Uh, and it is therefore that uh, Ataturk's attempt to first rename the city and then uh, turn the church and the, or the, the mosque, which it was at that time, into being a museum was seen as explicitly anti-Islamic. Well, it's on so, the par with him going to, I think, the town of Kastamonu one day in 1924, if I remember correctly, and deliberately knocking the fez off the first grave old man that he saw walking the other way as a, a symbolic gesture. Nobody wears that stuff anymore. You know, it's, who, who was this man? Uh, there are many anecdotes of, of, of this kind uh, throughout uh, Ataturk's rule and his reign. Uh, the story of his invention of the modern Turkish alphabet, uh, or rather his uh, command to have that alphabet invented, is also very interesting. And there are many, many ways in which Ataturk attempted to detach Turkish national ethnic identity from, uh, from Islam. And before we leave that series, we should mention above all, he copied something that was brand new in the time. It had only been implemented for the first time in world history in 1905 in France, slightly afterwards in Belgium. And that is laicism, as the French call it. 
a policy of government, should we say aggressive government secularism, not the separation of church and state um, as provided for by the US Bill of Rights, but much more uh, akin to government not recognizing religion at all, even less than the French Republic does or the Kingdom of Belgium does. Well, I would slightly disagree here, Alex, because as you know, in the Middle East, things are very often not what they to be. It True. doesn't uh, look on the on the outward kind of on their face side it does look like French laicism. But what Atatürk effectively did is that is he established a system that took over the whole uh, the whole religious body of, of, of the Turkish people, their their whole Islam, and is uh, appointed every imam, every uh, Muslim scholar was indoctrinated in a new way to, yes. uh, to, to fit that agenda. Uh, that has been done in France. There was that, an that attempt. Is, that's a state creed. Of course, the, the French Revolutionary Republic did try that in the 1790s, didn't it? The worship that's of right. pure reason and soon abolished it again um, and yes. even came to an agreement when they incorporated Alsace and Lorraine uh, into France after the Franco-Prussian War and the First World War. Um, but even before the First World War, uh, they came to an agreement, didn't they, that uh, France would fund the Protestant ministers in those territories uh, in apparent con uh, contradiction to the laicism they'd introduced. It's a very Western European way of doing things, very different from what you, you, you point out with Turkey, where this body, known by the word Dianet, uh, here in the Netherlands, where I'm speaking from, everyone knows that word, yeah. Germany, yeah. Um, Austria, because these are the men who literally write the, the contents of Friday sermons for every mosque in Turkey and in the Turkish diaspora, including especially in Western Europe. Well, interestingly, there was a period in, in, in Turkish history when even the Azan, the call to prayer, was uh, performed in, in Turkish. I didn't know that. Oral. Oh, yes, under Atatürk, they, they, they attempted that throughout the country. They reverted back to Arabic, but, but there was a period of time that was quite significant. When, when they uh, offered their azan in, uh, in, in Turkish. Moreover, they attempted creation of the Turkish Orthodox Church. They found, they found a Turkified Greek uh, who was, uh, I think they were converts to Islam or a supposed uh, sort of conversion. Sort of revert. Uh, well, well, they've they've reverted them back to orthodoxy in order to produce the Turkish Orthodox Church, and uh, the liturgy there would have been in Turkish. All the by now imagine imagine the bizarre situation that that family was in. They're in Constantinople. They're Greek. They've uh, declared their uh, Islamic faith just in order to be spared from the sword, as it were. And then, and then uh, they are asked to revert back to their uh, orthodox faith, but in a way that would reflect their new Turkish identity. So these Greeks are then having to chant the liturgy in the Turkish language, and instead of praying for the patriarch, they're paying, praying for President Atatürk. Uh, not, not quite, but, uh, well, they were definitely praying uh, for 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 Atatürk, but not uh, instead of the patriarch. They wouldn't recognize that patriarch. Actually, that Greek person was made the patriarch of the Greek, of, of the Turkish Church. 
it's a very interesting story. But now, what I was, what, what the point I'm trying to make is, uh, just to cut, cut the long story short, is that whatever Atatürk has been doing throughout his uh, rule and then throughout his legacy, there was uh, there was a president of Turkey, uh, I think three uh, presidents down the line from Atatürk called Adnan Menendez or Menderes, sorry. Uh, After whom the airport is, or at least used to be named, in Ankara, I think. Uh, possibly, not sure about that. But uh, this Menderes uh, president, he was uh, almost an exact replica of what uh, Erdogan is resembling today. Basically, he was Erdogan uh, 60 years ago. But, but Menderes was hanged. This was uh, not the first and not the last of these military coups moments, wasn't it, when the CIA, which is get what gets the Western listeners very excited when I say that, but it's, it's really a bit part in the whole project, the, the CIA was is one of those who then decides this project is getting too Islamic. Uh, Erdogan was the president who formally rehabilitated Menderes. It was proclaimed that Menderes was a legitimate person, not a traitor, he shouldn't have been hanged, and so forth. And it's very interesting how how Erdogan is, is, is reverting Turkey back to its uh, pre-Atatürk roots. Uh, but the difficulty there, in my opinion, is that there isn't or there hasn't been a, a Turkey in history that wasn't an Ottoman Empire and wasn't a republic. Now they're having a republic that needs to be Islamic and somehow resembling the Ottoman Empire as well. And these these things are very difficult to reconcile. It's it's impossible under under Islam, it's impossible to reconcile republicanism and Islam. How are you going to have a republic in a religion that requires that you have an Ummah and the Hilafah? A caliph, as the Western audience might know it. And of course it was um Atatürk's decision to abolish the caliphate that maybe laid a false trail for some people that they thought um, that that he was directly going to replace the caliph but apparently not because uh, you know what the diversion that's triumphed with Erdogan it seems is is as a restoration of the caliphate of course if you're an empire you have overseas territories and so we see the resurgence of Turkish interest in the North African littoral particularly with the energy politics and uh, uh, associated military uh, actions going on in both Libya and more particularly Syria, along with a great deal of plunder, as the, um, the, the politicians in Aleppo in particular have been pointing out, you know, wholesale plundering of, of industrial plant and, uh, and oil and taking it back. Um, what, more generally, though, than just the Turkish nation or state, there's an issue with Eastern European super states generally, isn't there, Gevork, that uh, if you look at the whole modern period, really, from the 17th century onwards, the Tsarist Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, between them, they ruled everything east of Vienna. And all three of them had a concept of, we have a royal family, it has a state creed, the bureaucrats and the capital city, or the, those who are important in the capital city, are in that creed. But there are many territories where there is another ethnic group with another religion. And these have to be formalized and it has to be written on their internal passports, which all these Eastern European empires had. So in the Tsarist Empire and continuing through the Soviet period, you're a Soviet citizen and you have an ethnicity or a nationalist, as they say. In the Ottoman Empire, 
you're a subject of the caliph or khilafa, but you also have a milieu, a national affiliation, a regulated one. Austria had something quite similar, all basically regulated by police state uh, and regulation and bureaucracy. Uh, isn't that a major plank of, of how Turkey or any country in that region now has to deal with the diversity in its midst, uh, finding a way of regulating and channeling the various affiliations of the citizens? Well, I would say that the, one of the main differences between the Ottoman Empire and the modern day Turkey is that uh, modern day Turkey doesn't have that many minorities to, to incorporate. That's quite a uh, euphemism for certain things that went on in the 1920s, isn't it? Well, uh, precisely, precisely. After the genocide that the Turkish what government or the, the powers that be in Turkey that weren't quite the government sometimes, for instance, what I'm referring to as the Kurdish militia, uh, after the genocide that they have perpetrated over their Christian subjects at the time, I mean, who do you who do you really need to uh, incorporate? So I don't think that the issue is with the with the uh, religious and the ethnic minorities in Turkey. Uh, the issue within Turkey is with their political minority, uh, which is which is a very sizable minority. Uh, the west of Turkey is populated by more liberal, broadly speaking, more pro-democracy, pro-republic uh, kind of people. These people oppose Erdogan's staunch push for re-Islamization of Turkey. And the main problem that Turkey is facing now is how to, how to reconcile their strife for a neo-Islamic empire that they're trying to make themselves out to be with, with the fact that 40% of their population opposes that. So, and more particularly, you get unrest in large neighborhoods in Istanbul, which is, of course, a mega city. People who haven't visited might not appreciate that it's up there with Moscow. It's, it's bigger than London or Paris now. It's uh, Europe's uh, mega city in many ways. And it has continued to be flooded with former peasants of either Turkish or Kurdish ethnicity who've come in from the Anatolian plateau in the east of Turkey. And this has happened to the other cities in, in, west of, in the west of Turkey, which, as you say, until about the 1990s were overwhelmingly, as they had been for centuries, uh, despite you know, changing ethnic populations, they were overwhelmingly western-facing industrial cities or trading well, cities. In, interestingly, Alex, the enrichment, as it were, in Turkey is now done on behalf of the uh, Syrian uh, refugees and the Iraqi refugees that come into the country in millions. So they do bring their, their own uh, addition to the whole Islamization process, because of course the Muslims in, in the Arabic countries are, are more fervent often in, in, in their following of Islam. Yes, because then, even, uh, even within Sunni Islam, the Turks, uh, those, those who were not Alevis or don't know, who were actually main, mainline Sunnis, were more relaxed about the role of women, women's dress, and uh, the content of preaching than, than the, the Arab co-religionists were, absolutely. The division, the division in Turkey, uh, vaguely speaking, is uh, East against the West. Western Turkey, everything nearer Europe and everything on the southern coast 
near an Italian area is is quite relaxed. Whereas, Open to business for Russian tourists in bikinis, to put it in shorthand. And 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 and, and uh, English and Irish uh, beer lovers too. Uh, uh, central Central Turkey is a lot more conservative. And then there's the bit that people don't think about in the map in their heads, which is that Turkey uh, extends as much eastwards from the point where the Mediterranean stops or turns southwards as it does to the west. That peninsula of Asia Minor is only half of Turkey geographically, isn't it? Geographically, you're very correct. However, population wise, most of the population is in the west. Uh, all the former Armenian lands, for instance, now hold about 10 million people, and then that's one third of Turkey. So uh, geography and population density are not uh, do not correspond uh, evenly. No, you have, uh, and the East is, is a more or less traditional upland society, isn't it? It's it's not got the uh, the topography or the, the the location in the world to to form large cities. That's right. It's the highlands, and you cannot fit too many people to live there. However, let's turn from Turkey's internal situation to what its external aspirations are, because I think these uh, these are uh, interconnected. Turkey is reverting to its uh, historically Islamic past inside or within, but what does it do on the out outside? And uh, you've mentioned some of these things together already. For instance, the uh, uh, efforts that Turkey is making in Libya in order to gain uh, ground uh, on, on that territory. But, but let's look at some other places as well. Uh, for instance, uh, what do you know about Syria? How, how heavy is Turkish presence in Syria? Well, we are closely allied with 21st century wire com. Patrick Henningsen has made several trips to Syria and uh, likewise Vanessa Beely, who these days mainly, I think, writes for the wallwillfall.com and has often appeared on UK Column News. And we know from them, and they would be the first to say, don't give them all the credit, uh, look at their Syrian informants uh, and some quite senior ones like Faris Shalabi MP, the independent politician for part of Aleppo City. Uh, they have all pointed this out and just generally people being interviewed from East Aleppo, from Damascus uh, as the, um, what shall we say, uh, the insurgents uh, of questionable origin have moved out. The, the, the people left behind on the streets have said um, and they, they don't appear to be wanting to stoke ethnic tensions by saying so that Turkish speaking gentlemen came in while we were under terrorist occupation and moved our stuff over the border. Well, there you have it. Uh, and uh, apart from that, of course, uh, it is widely known that Turkey uh, maintains heavy military presence in Syria, especially in uh, Afrin and uh, Idlib areas. The last two provinces, of course, where there has not been a clear out. And of course, the Syrian government had a deliberate policy, perhaps a commendable one, a wise one, of uh, turning a blind eye to Mujahideen presence in those provinces in order to allow a fairly bloodless clearing out of the cities, because, of course, the urban guerrilla warfare in the late stage of winning a civil war is, is the is the most dreaded bloodshed in any uh, terrain. And that that's largely been avoided by this policy of creating the, the rural pockets, uh, which we are now getting indications will be cleared out uh, around August, September, when I, th I think you'll agree with me, that's kind of the 
the high point of military activity in the Near East. You know, obviously, there's a, there's a burst in April most years, but August, September tends to be another campaign highlight period. Well, uh, I will not be anticipating any of the events, but uh, from from my point of view, I also expect uh, Syria to heaten up a little bit. And I mean, how, how, how much worse could you become from from being Syria today? But uh, I think there's still way to go. And uh, I, I think the Russian influence in Syria uh, is uh, destined to grow. Uh, but uh, but so is uh, the Turkish attempt to uh, establish their presence in, in Syria once and for all is going to be reinforced. Uh, Let's bring the Russians what, into this, Gevor. Depending on what happens in Libya. Oh, so Libya, uh, absolutely. And, and of course, the other talking point in the Western mainstream media right now is the idea that Russian contractors as elsewhere in the Maghreb, as well elsewhere in North Africa, Russian contractors are uh, mercenaries, basically, are, are doing all of this dirty work, um, which is probably inflated in the telling. Maybe you want to get down and dirty in that area, or maybe you more want generally want to look to the direction we haven't spoken about much yet, which is northwards across the Black Sea. Russia is, of course, a Black Sea nation. Uh, its port is on the Black Sea, the, the only one that doesn't freeze over. Um, Sivastopol, which, of course, together with the, the rest of the Crimean hinterland has now been annexed by Russia. We probably don't want to go down that path very much. But more generally, the significance, let's bring it back to the city that we started with, the significance of Constantinople, alias Byzantium, alias Istanbul, for Russia uh, symbolically as a capital of Eastern Orthodox Christianity and strategically. How far do you go along with the alternative Western historical thesis, I think it's quite common in German dissident circles now, as well as Russian dissident circles, that Britain and France contrived to destroy Russia in the Great War by making her an ally rather than an enemy, using the Germans as a battering ram against her and using the false enticement of control of the Dardanelles or of the city of Istanbul as a prize. I mean, sometimes this degenerates into a religious cod argument that the Tsars only had to have Istanbul dangled in front of them and supposedly they thought well this is the holy task of mother Russia I must regain this mystic city which I don't buy but what do you think was the thinking in the leading years to the, the first world war in Russia did they really okay. want to control Istanbul uh, well definitely of course the Russians want to control Istanbul it's 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 the straits that are and have always been important to Russia but let me let me give you uh, this uh, conversation that I had with with an advisor to one of the senior, very senior Russian officials. Uh, it's a very recent conversation, and it happened after this uh, declaration of conversion of Hagia Sophia into, into a mosque. Uh, I did ask, he said, well, uh, what, what is your feeling as a state? Of course, there's, there's official statements that are made, and uh, they're cooled down. But uh, I, I was wondering about the feeling that the Russians had about, about this happening. And uh, he said that one of the officials told him, one of the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials told him that now that they have Crimea as, as, as a part of Russia, what they should perhaps consider doing is, uh, have, you will know, Alex, the city of Khersonesk. It's, uh, it's the ancient Byzantine city on the territory of Crimea. Yes. Uh, they said what they should consider doing is 
proclaiming a Byzantine Republic in the city of Hersones, then <laughs> adjoining that city to Russia, and then laying claim to the whole Byzantine territory or something like that. It's a very Russian move, isn't it? Because, of course, to them it would be a poetic... I didn't mean to cut you off. It would be be a poetic reversal or rhyming of history to the Russians, because for those who don't know, Crimea and the adjoining steppe or grasslands just to the north was a badland ruled by the uh, various bands of Cossacks for centuries, Zaborozhia, that area, Um, and many of the stragglers who were left behind by the golden horde of, of Turkified Mongols when they had first of all adopted Islam and then stopped plundering. They were sitting there and Crimea was a thorn in the flesh of all the Eastern Slavs for centuries. And many of the cities in that area continued to regard themselves as the mistress of the whole Black Sea or right down to the Straits, the Dardanelles, for a long time. So that the, the connection between Crimea and the Istanbul area of, um, of the Straits is very deep. Uh, the point there is that this particular area of Crimea was part of the Byzantine Empire at the same time as Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Empire. So the, the logic there, the reasoning there is, why don't we have this little strip of land, proclaim it a successor or a legal successor? Ah, yes. this, is, this is Russia's Empire. use of international law very cleverly, yes, successor state, which of course they are for the Soviet Union. They are and for the Russian Empire, but because they have this grip over over the ancient Byzantine territory, they could say, well, this particular piece of Byzantine territory is now the full legal representative of what the Byzantine state was. So this is the uh, heir to Constantinople, Hagia Sophia and everything else. Well, this would also be a reverse Kosovo maneuver, wouldn't it? I mean, Putin made good in in the first instance his threat to the Munich Security Conference of 2007 that he would recognize Abkhazia and South Ossetia as a quid pro quo for the recognition of Kosovo. He made good on that the next year uh, in the aftermath of the... I want to underline, I want to underline that the whole of this discussion was uh, brought up jokingly. It's, It's not anything that they consider seriously. No, I mean, that, this is how Russian diplomats are, you and I know, of course, they, they, they have learned quips among themselves, but, but that, that tell rather uh, interesting points, you know, sore points uh, illustrated by these geopolitical jokes. That's the Russian way, isn't it? It is. It is. You, 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 you're precisely spot on here, Alec. But uh, I was interested, interested in the feeling. And of course, the feeling is is anger, to put it mildly, because they could tolerate the museum because half of the Russian churches are still museums from, from the Soviet era. So that, that isn't, you know, having a church as a museum isn't offensive because you can enter as a Christian, you can go into a museum and pray there and nobody would ever, you know, uh, hinder that. Uh, but if it's a mosque, then as a Christian, you're not allowed to pray to, to a God that you believe to be Trinity. You cannot do that in a mosque under under the Islamic terms. And that's that's very offensive to the Christians because that's the church, Hagia Sophia, is, is the center, the very heart of what the Russian Orthodoxy is. What, what and of course, the for centuries, there were, there, there were pilgrims from all over 
the Western and Eastern Christian world coming to that very building, weren't there? Well, up until this COVID pandemic, there were many groups that went uh, to Constantinople uh, from Russia. Uh, they went there from uh, Bulgaria and Greece as well. And I was able to witness personally these pilgrims come into Hagia Sophia and, and pray there, which they wouldn't be allowed to do under the new legislation and under the new status that this building has. Uh, because, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, uh, the regulations for behavior in mosques prohibits that. In closing, shall we do a tour d'horizon, as the diplomats sometimes say, uh, a scan of the horizon, um, we, perhaps starting in the West, in the Balkans, where Turkey has unfinished business with the West, going back to the sick man of Europe period. In fact, before 1900, certainly in, uh, after 1900, these these countries emerging from uh, Ottoman rule and you know since the so since the mid 2000s there's been this great game being played between Russia and the West in the largely Eastern Orthodox largely Slavic area that is the Balkans. Um, let's start there and work around clockwise shall we and when we get to the far east of the equation Armenia Azerbaijan there's a war going on there right now uh, but try to encapsulate how you see Turkey's ambitions right now. What what I find puzzling is that Turkey uh, joins every fight it's invited to at, at this time. Uh, it, it was definitely not the case under under the previous uh, administration, under Ataturkish or Ataturkian, whichever uh, Kemalist, was more correct or, or Kemalist, uh, under that government. But, but Erdogan, he, look, he is, he is present in Bosnia. He has his military advisors, so-called so advisors in Bosnia, and they're equipping Bosnian Muslims against the Christian Serbs uh, in, in, in that area, uh, which, in my opinion, is contributing to hindering peace there. Uh, there as has soon as been you mentioned, as soon as you mentioned Bosnia, and this spectre of white Mujahideen as well, which is something that got the West very scared just after 9-11. I have to think about the Balkans route uh, for smuggling of all commodities, alas, even children, but certainly also um, people being trafficked for organs and a large quantity of heroin coming into Europe that way. And if you look at some of the whistleblowers from inside the FBI and NATO, they talk about Turkey being a decades long major partner with the British and American deep state in the running of that. Would that explain the, 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 the emphasis of the Turkish state on having a presence in Bosnia? Uh, but Bosnia isn't the only state where they have such presence. If you look at Kosovo and Albania, you will, you will see that uh, the Turks are not only heavily present there economically, but they're also present there militar militarily. Yes, and Professor uh, uh, Dr. Olsi Yazeji uh, has again given many interviews to um, uh, outlets closely associated with us, certainly 21st Century Wire, and has made this point that even uh, that they're now even importing uh, Mujahideen Khalq rebels, Iranians, this is, uh, into Kosovo and Albania proper and training them there under what seems to be pretty close CIA or British tutelage. Also, there is pressure. Uh, 
uh, over North Macedonia and Serbia from the Turkish government. And this, uh, this is done under a very interesting scheme. It's involving Azerbaijan as well. And you will recall, Alex, how brilliantly Dilana Gaitanjeva from Bulgaria exposed all the trade or illegal trade deals that the Azeri government and the Turkish government and the Serbian uh, well, the Serbian government uh, had uh, in uh, laundering um, billions of dollars and smuggling armor uh, in, 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 in Syria. This so, was a big shock because, you know, for it, it seemed at first glance that Diliana's brilliant work was exposing a, a recapitulation of an Iran-Contra situation that the Brits and Americans have long had, uh, where Mujahideen have men and weapons dropped, for, dropped off for them in convenient edges on the uh, uh, zones on the edges of war zones. Uh, but there seems to be more to it than that, because the more we look into it and the, the overlap with, with COVID fascism is quite close as well. We see that the Eastern Orthodox Slavic nations of the Balkans are, have gone full uh, dictatorship with regard to lockdowns. Interestingly, the people have risen up against it in all of these areas and have told the government, reverse it now or we will depose you. But in all these regards, uh, I don't know how much the Anglo-American tutelage is responsible. These governments are acting like mini Ottoman empires themselves. Oh, that's that's very correct. That's very correct. You get free from uh, from an empire and then you resemble that empire in a mini uh, dimension yourself. That happened to many countries across the world, including not least because of communism that... being all that they knew. Well, it doesn't have to be uh, that particular situation. It could be, for instance, look at Ireland. Their uh, state that uh, had proclaimed independence, fought for it, and, and now they're, they're a reflection of what Britain used to be 50 years ago uh, in yes. terms of their political uh, establishment and, uh, and their uh, pro-European approach and so forth. I think it happens in, in, in many different places. You, uh, as, a, as a newer country, you take all your heritage from the older country and apply it on your soil in, in, in the way that you're able to implement it. But let's go down from the, well, from the Balkans and we'll see that Turkey has serious, serious, serious problems with Greece uh, over the islands, over the shelf, over, over the uh, Cyprus issue that has, has been unresolved now for more than 40 years. It's uh, unbelievable how Turkey and Greece, both NATO allies, can go to a point in their relationship as, as that of yesterday, when, when Greece declared mobilization of, of its army. Uh, because they were expecting an attack from Turkey. This is unbelievable, but this is this is the reality that we're living in today. In, in and, very broad unless, terms, the Greeks would probably win in the air, but the Turks on the ground, if it came to this unthinkable thing of a war between two NATO allies. But particularly well, unthinkable it, because, of course, it, an Article 5 commitment would, in theory, oblige every member of NATO to fight for both sides in that war. Well, I don't... I think uh, NATO's Article 5 is going to apply because Article 5 applies from an, uh, applies to external invasions. 
Right. But I would definitely be able to name the country that would win that war. If Greece and Turkey started the war, Russia would certainly win it. <laughs> very well put. Uh, you speak very much in these terms like uh, the Duran. Of course, that, that duo is made up of uh, a Greek and a Cypriot, so they have a very close interest in, in reporting on this issue. But uh, everything in, in Greco-Turkish relations has to be seen through a Russian prism, doesn't it? Well, we have mentioned that in talking about the uh, Hagia Sophia Church that's been now made the mosque. But let's go further south and let's see what's happening in Libya. Okay, so we're going counterclockwise to our American listeners. Yes, let's go across the Mediterranean. What's going on in Libya right now? Again, as you were saying a moment ago, the break with Kemalism, which was an attempt not to have a, a row with any of the neighbours uh, and to have good intelligence on all of them, is replaced by this partisanship and being an, a kind of a defiant Athanasius character in the Near East, because Turkey has now thrown all caution to the wind and taken up with one of the sides in the Libyan civil war uh, in defiance of Russia and NATO, and not just NATO generally, but more particularly the French and Italians, the powerful navies in the immediate vicinity, who can resupply much more easily than Turkey can. Uh, I would like to mention uh, the difficulty with Egypt, particularly, that uh, Turkey has at the moment, because what interests me in all of this is of course, Egyptians, they have their ambitions and they have their view of their region because Libya is bordering them and seared the city where the Egyptian president Assisi has drawn his famous red line is uh, the westmost point from Egypt that uh, would uh, be required to be peaceful in order to keep uh, Egyptian stability. But look, let's look at, at Egypt itself. It's a nation of about 100 million people. It's an, an economic and cultural powerhouse for the Arab world. And it was the motherload of resistance uh, to Turkish Ottoman rule for centuries, even, long before the Arabian Peninsula was. Absolutely. That's, that's right. But Egypt is also the only viable Arabic state in the world. Ultimately, yes, because uh, the of course the Syrians were the most progressive secularist of the Levantine Arabs, and what did they do from 1958 for two years? Ally with Gamal Nasser's Egypt. That was the one attempt they could have to have a united Arab Republic. Of course, it fell apart but, in the but, same way that Pakistan did. Syria, but it indicates that Egypt is the, the center of, of Arab statehood. Syria does not exist as a, as, a, as a whole entity anymore, so we cannot really call it a viable state. We have Saudi Arabia that that is a country based on their oil produce, and oil sales, but we must recognize that if, God forbid, anything happens in this region, Saudi Arabia will be completely destroyed within a matter of hours, uh, or, uh, you know, if, if they resist very hard, then it will take day, days, and then Iran will have them, uh, have them completely destroyed because they're they not, as a country, they're not able to resist any meaningful or any serious attempt to take them over. Uh, what, what other Arabic state or Arab state is, is, is able to protect and defend themselves against, uh, against major powers? I don't think there are many. The... There was Iraq. Yes, the, the, Iraq was the only one. And of course, I'm not going to get into a, 
a, quid, a, a pro and con discussion about Israel in the region here, but any military analyst of any affiliation looking at Israel fighting the Arab states in 67 and 74 points to this. And under Saddam Hussein, Iraq was getting to the point of having, again, because it was a state socialist regime like Syria, a Ba'athist regime, they were getting to the point of having effective control and knowing that all the colonels were going to turn up for battle and be obedient to the general. Uh, but what's of course, that, that's no longer. About, what's interesting about Egypt, Alex, is that uh, Egypt, just like any other state, any other Arab state in, in, in that region, they have coups. They have uh, protests, they have problems and demonstrations and all sorts of those things. But it, uh, Egypt doesn't fall apart like all the others do. No, Whenever there were because even in antiquity, in, in you know, the reason why Egypt became a civilization is because it had enough bulk, enough density, that a palace coup could be absorbed. The civilization would just carry on. It didn't make much difference to the common man. Just two days ago, the Egyptian parliament uh, adopted a resolution uh, permitting the Egyptian government to use their military force outside Egyptian borders, which means that Assisi's hands are now uh, loose to to protect Egypt's interest in, in Libya. So but what's you interesting... telling me an outline that all of Turkey's really significant neighbours have just this summer authorized themselves to take action against Turkey militarily. Absolutely. But uh, I, was, I was going to say this. I was going to say that uh, yesterday, very interestingly, France, as Turkey's ally in NATO, furnished Egypt with uh, anti-missile systems and, and um, airplanes, aircraft, military aircraft. To, and it's not, not long uh, since uh, Russia did the same with uh, sending S-400s to Egypt. Uh, well, Russia isn't Turkey's military ally. That's, let's put it that way. France is. And France is supporting Egypt in this situation with Turkey. But, and of course, far, France is indirectly fighting Turkey in Libya already, uh, which, which, which is a whole other matter. But let's let's just go counterclockwise, as you've uh, you've suggested previously, and say and see. Well, does Turkey have problems with with Egypt? Certainly does. How about Syria? Oh, there are very serious problems with Syria that Turkey has. Let's look at uh, at Iraq. Uh, how about the relations uh, between Erdogan and the Kurdish uh, autonomous uh, government in the north of Iraq? Directly bordering Turkey. What's happening there? Uh, they're not. They're not in love with each other, to put it mildly. I would say. And then uh, let's look at Iran. And in Iran, there is uh, a massive insurgence growing. Uh, in, uh, in, in the insurgencies, uh, the uh, Azeri Turkic nationalists uh, trying to establish their own government over northwest Iran. We should point out for those who are not au fait with this, that since uh, the Iranians or the Persians lost a war with the Tsarist Empire in 1828, the large Turkic nationality that's now called Azerbaijan was split in half and everything south of the Araxes River went to Persia and the northern half was ceded to the Tsarist Empire. And is that part is now the independent Republic of Azerbaijan, who are in language almost identical with Eastern Turks and in religion, quite similar to Iranians. 
but there is there always has been a, a nationalist undercurrent, sometimes overplayed, because uh, heretofore the uh, the Azeris in northwestern Iran have been very happy as, as citizens of Iran or Persia before that, but that could change. And while we're on that point, we should also point out to the listeners that Iran and Turkey do have, although it's in a very remote highland area, uh, contiguity. They do have a border with each other. Uh, that's true. I would like to bring additions to two of the points that you made. Well. Uh, of course, you're correct in saying that many Turkic citizens of Iran are perfectly happy being Iranian and being part of the Irani society uh, because of a number of reasons, not least of which is their Shia uh, affiliation. Their Shia Another Muslim. case of the point that this podcast makes... Um or has made before already, which is that uh, religious affiliation often trumps ethnic affiliation. But what's happening in Azerbaijani Republic in the north is quite remarkable, because when Azerbaijan gained its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991, it was almost exclusively Shia slash communist atheist. Yes. Whereas now, it's up to I, by the most modest estimations, it's it's up to 30% Sunni already. And the this, government of Azerbaijan... I remember in the early 2000s, uh, this was spreading out from the large oil town of Sumgayit, very near the capital of Baku. And the Azeris were telling their NATO friends, particularly the Anglo-Americans who were naive compared with the continental Europeans, that we had this big problem of jihadi elements all coming from the Gulf. But it is, in fact a native decision by these Turkic Azeri people. Maybe it's a badge of opposition to the Aliyev regime. I don't know the father and son who ruled that country for many years now. But whatever it is, it's they're, they're voting with their feet and going from one mosque to another. So before long, well, it will jihad, be... The jihadi elements that you're mentioning, and I remember what you're talking about, That, and since you mentioned Sumgait especially, that's referring to a settlement called Nardaran in, in uh, Azerbaijan. And these are radical Shia Muslims. These are not radical Sunni Muslims. These are the Shias that do not like the secular nature of Azerbaijan's republic. So this is not the same as, as, as what I'm trying to explain here. The uh, Sunnification of Azerbaijan is a process that started with Ilham Aliyev, or, uh, not, not his father, not Hidar Aliyev, but Ilham, the current president. And it's an ongoing process because overall it seems that Azerbaijan's uh, international priority is to uh, eventually merge with Turkey economically, politically, militarily, and uh, religiously as well. And this is, uh, this is what they're trying to achieve in, in religion. They're deliberately promoting Sunni Islam in Azerbaijan, and they're restricting uh, Shia activity because they are afraid of, of Iranian influence through the Shia, uh, Shia religious system, even though the Shia Islam establishment is officially the established kind of Islam in Azerbaijan. But its but powers are getting less by day. Sorry, this I can flip because um, Iran was was Sunni until the uh, early 17th century, and then overnight 
when the court went Shia, most of the population did, not overnight, but in historical terms, it only took a generation. So these things can happen within Islam, as within Christianity, people transferring from one denomination to another. And this can have hardcore geopolitical ramifications, even while people still speak the same language as they did before. But while you mentioned that, Gevorg, you remind me that the smart money has long said that Turkey has sought through military and economic means, training and so on, to produce miniature versions of itself in a corridor that stretches east to the Chinese border. And they may again have Western banking elite support in this aim. Uh, but if we continue talking about the southern Caucasus region where we've ended up, the eastern flank of Turkey, if Azerbaijan in a new Sunnified form, a pro-Turkish form, were to ship its oil uh, to the west, which it already does, but to form a block with Turkey, a military block as well, two things have to happen. First, the southern underbelly of Georgia, the country in between, which already has lots of ethnic Turks as areas there, would have to be incorporated territorially or internationalized in, you know, become a dancing corridor of the east. Uh, by the way, the pipeline between Baku and the Mediterranean already goes under that territory. That's been a long vector I've seen in geopolitics of the region since 2000, if not before. The other is there is also another Christian non-Turkic people in the middle, the Armenians. And with incredible timing, the Azeris, close allies of Turkey, have attacked not the exclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, which they've done many times, but this time they have attacked a section of border in Armenia proper, northeastern Armenia, which is fairly unprecedented, isn't it? Is that part of the overarching strategy to get Armenia and Georgia out of the way geopolitically? From my point of view, I would not say that the purpose is to get Armenia and Georgia out of the way, because uh, they are not able to get Armenia out of the way, and Georgia doesn't hinder them. The Georgian government, even though uh, this current government that Georgia has is very moderate and uh, far better balanced than the previous government, Saakashvili's government. This current government still cooperates with Azerbaijan and Turkey very, very well, and they do not have any hindrance. The Azeris and the Turks uh, coming from the territory of Georgia. Nothing hinders their economic, military, uh, or other efforts in the region. Armenia, however, is a different matter altogether. Armenia has an alliance with Russia, and that alliance uh, mandates that if Armenia is attacked uh, by any power in the world, Russia must retaliate and protect Armenia's sovereignty. Uh, the, in this particular instance, I think the overarching strategy over the attack is, is, is something else. I think the Turks have inspired this attack. The Turks have uh, planned it and masterminded it uh, for a number of reasons. Well, first of all, uh, Turkish military presence in, in Azerbaijan is growing by day, and the Turks uh, would like their a new Bayraktar uh, drones tested in a situation where the missile defense system is very similar to what the Russians have in Russia. And uh, this was, uh, you know, this is a buy kind of product 
of, of, of this attack, they were able to test some of the Turkish equipment in this conflict. But and didn't the Armenians manage to shoot down an Israeli-supplied drone, which has been the mainstay of Georgia and Azerbaijan's air defense for quite a while? Certainly in aggressive situations, Israeli-made drones, and now one of them worth $30 million was shot out of the air by Armenia. The Armenians shot down 14 Israeli-made drones, one of them uh, costing $30 million, as you correctly pointed out. But some of the others, interestingly, were not uh, shot down, but landed. So the Armenians took over, uh, you know, the rule over these. Oh, this, this uh, is the Russian tactic, isn't it? EW, electronic and, warfare, capture and yes. ban. Uh, Armenia's prime minister recently kind of mentioned in passing that uh, the Azeri effort uh, did not add to uh, the positive image of uh, Israeli uh, machinery and drone making industry. It's a complete re rehash of what happened in uh, Abkhazia, the separatist region of Georgia, in 2006 or 7, wasn't it? When an Elbit drone, again, Israeli manufactured exported drone, got shot down, um, operated by the Georgians and uh, was shot down by uh, a self-declared republic of about 100,000 people. Well, yes. So, so things in the Caucasus are not always very uh, smooth and very easy, even for such powerhouses as, as, as Turkey. Uh, but what we're going to say here is this. Uh, Aliyev, Azerbaijani president, is, is a figure that tries to uh, play it both ways, with the Russians and with Turks. He is somebody who studied in the Russian uh, university, the Moscow State University, or, or Moscow uh, University for International Relations. His father, of course, was, was a remarkable KGB high-ranking officer and then the head of Soviet Azerbaijan and then the president of Azerbaijan, independent Azerbaijan. So he is, he is uh, here to this uh, uh, famous Russian Azeri KGB dynasty and therefore trusted by the Russian government. But he is also continuing Azerbaijani uh, closer affiliation with Turkey. He is uh, taking... Uh, is drifting uh, by every uh, chance he gets, is taking Azerbaijan closer to Turkey. What's uh, happening with him is very interesting because this attack, uh, it provoked massive protests inside Azerbaijan. And initially, these protests were anti-Armenian, demanding Azerbaijan to go to a full-scale war with Armenia. But then a large portion of these protesters, they started demanding uh, Aliyev's resignation. And they entered uh, their, uh, their parliament building and destroyed it up until third floor. And it was very heavy uh, fighting there between the police and the rioters. So, I suspect, now I don't have any solid information there, but this is my, my suspicion. You know, people do have their suspicion. I suspect that Turkey would like a more one-sidedly pro-Turkish governor in Azerbaijan than Aliyev. And I suspect that Turkey could predict 
that any Azeri attack on Armenia would not go as smooth as Azerbaijan thought it would. So, so I don't quite understand. I understand why Turkey needed it. This attack. I understand why the Armenians were able to protect themselves uh, in, in this situation. What I don't understand is what did Aliyev expect to gain out of that attack? He was not going to take uh, Nagorno-Karabakh back by attacking Armenia's northern borders. That was not, he was not going to be able to do. Uh, was it an attempt to divert Armenia's attention from Karabakh and, and then the head from, from the south as well? Possibly. There are rumors that suggest that. But overall, as it stands right now, Azerbaijan suffered a very significant loss in, in, in the whole of this uh, situation, and President Aliyev's positioning in the state has been weakened, seriously weakened. And, and there, I think, Turkey has a point. Givor Kvirats, we've only spent an hour on the region. I think many of our listeners will have had their minds slightly blown by the complexity of it. Um, Turkey clearly is the key nation and key state in this region for good and for ill. And I'm sure that in future podcasts, we'll revert to this, perhaps homing in more on the uh, Russo-Turkish angle, which is deeply historic and very fraught as well. Many thanks for this most enlightening discussion. Well, thank you very much, Alex. It's been a pleasure talking to you.